Open your Bibles to Romans 14. Uh, we are going to close our series on key verses in Romans by looking at Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. And also, if you're a guest with us, if you look in the back of your bulletin, you can see an outline. That may help you to follow along as well. The wise man Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. And we know that's true. And we think of those words often. I was reminded of that when I thought in Jesus' day, he challenged the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 because they were teaching their traditions as if they were God's commands. And the same problem is still today. God's people have still been dividing and arguing and splitting over methods and mechanics and minutia, while at the same time failing at what really matters. So how do we handle things that are, that are not specifically, explicitly forbidden in Scripture, or even addressed in Scripture? Well, in Romans 14, Paul refers to these as opinions, or disputable matters, or doubtful things, depending on what translation you're reading. Sometimes we call this concept gray areas. One of the challenges for anyone who is new to the faith, new to being a Christian, is realizing that not everything is black and white. Some things, there's not a thus saith the Lord, and so it's often colored gray. The Bible does have some specific commands and doctrinal truths, but there are some things that the Bible doesn't mention at all. There is no verse that deals with that. So there is no black and white, but they are gray. See, Paul understood that we need to understand and believe the right doctrine. And he would often, as he would write letters to churches, open the first part of that letter telling them what that right doctrine was. But he would more often than not also share a section about right behavior. So it's not enough just to know the right thing, believe the right thing. He wanted to make sure that those of us who wear the name of Christ are behaving and getting along. And I think this is shown in the fact of the book of Romans that he spends so much time here in Romans chapter 14 and on into chapter 15 telling Christians how to get along. Let me share with this. It's just by way of illustration to get us going. Leslie Flynn writes in his book, about a variety of disagreements that happens among God's people. Gray matters that create division and hurt feelings. Here's what he wrote. A Christian from the South may be repelled by a swimming party for both men and women, but then offend her northern friend by wearing a pantsuit to church. At an international meeting for missionaries, a woman from the Orient cannot wear sandals indoors with a clear conscience, while others think her silly for coming barefoot. A Christian from Eastern Europe thinks it's terribly worldly, and wasteful for a Christian acquaintance to have a wedding ring. Yet a woman he knows from further south would consider it a scandalous thing to be in public without her wedding rings on. A man from Denmark is pained in his spirit to watch British Bible students playing soccer on a Sunday afternoon, while the students in turn are grieved when he lights his pipe on his porch. The issues, though certainly do not determine your future in heaven and hell, but they do affect our fellowship with one another. So what do we do in these areas? Who's right and who's wrong? Do you remember when you were a child and you got into an argument with your brother or sister and you would go to your parents and you wanted them to set your brother or your sister straight? Tell them I'm right. Tell them they're wrong. And sometimes a parent would do that. But a wise parent would often know, sometimes as those children would come and they would disagree, that wise parent would know 
The best answer is not to tell them the answer at all, but to tell them to work it out. But that wasn't the answer that that child wanted to hear. They wanted to hear they were right. They wanted to hear that their sibling was wrong. And so you walk away disappointed because you didn't get the easy answer. Sometimes even as adults, we can be like children in our thinking, and we prefer to have somebody to tell us what's the right answer. Tell us what we're supposed to think so we can be unified in every opinion and uniform in every appearance. We see a little of this thinking in Peter in the last chapter of John, chapter 21. Do you remember how Peter failed Jesus? Actually, all the disciples failed Jesus. But we got the details of Peter, how he just totally abandoned uh, the Lord. And it was so public from his trial, his persecution. So after Jesus came back from the grave, before he ascended, he spent some time in John chapter 21 talking with Peter, reaffirming Peter. And in doing that, he was kind of helping Peter to know that it's okay and he can move forward. That his past does not define him. But then Peter, it says in John chapter 21, verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom he loved was following him. Talking about John. When Peter saw him, verse 21, he asked, Lord, what about him? And then Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I guarantee you that was not the response Peter was anticipating. Or that Peter wanted to hear. But it was the answer that Peter needed to hear from Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome. This group of Christians who were deeply divided over issues of lifestyle and liberty. And he doesn't give them the answer that they wanted to hear. And I guarantee you, he will both irritate and educate the entire church with what he writes. I came across this saying, Whenever two or three are gathered together in my name, there will be disagreements as to what the Bible teaches. It's true, isn't it? But that may not be the only problem or even the biggest problem. See, if we disagree over what the Bible clearly teaches, one of us could be wrong. We might both be wrong, but one of us is wrong because we can't both have a different opinion if we're interpreting the text correctly. But follow me on this. Another issue, and maybe even a greater challenge for us at times, is when we disagree over what the Bible doesn't say. Who's right then? Who's wrong? See, the reality is, if the Bible doesn't speak to that and two Christians disagree, you could both be right. Or you could both be wrong. And it's tougher to handle the fact that both Christians who disagree could be right, maybe, than both Christians who disagree with what could be wrong. See, if anything, these gray matters, these disputable things, whatever you want to call them, should make us think. They should make us think, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible not say? These gray matters can mature us. They can sharpen us in the Word. And at the same time, they can strengthen our resolve for holy living. And they can help us to develop a relationship with people so that we can be graceful, like we talked about last week. But let me just say, that is hard to do. This is hard to do. It was, it was hard for the church at Rome. Because here's the reality. Grace 
is unsettling. It'd be so easy. Just give me the answer. Tell me what I know. Tell me what I'm supposed to think. Give me the easy answer. But when it comes to extending grace, it can be unsettling. See, when grace is given to me, and I think about that, and I sing about that, what comes to mind is amazing. It is amazing grace. This grace that I receive from God. And it feels good. It's hard to even put into words how amazing this grace is. But when I, in turn, or you, in turn, extend that grace to someone else, it doesn't feel as amazing. Because you're the one giving it instead of the one receiving it. But it is no less amazing. I like this poem I came across. I think it spells out the problem that Paul's addressing. The author's unknown. I came across it in Kent Hughes' book on Romans. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel. Think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look. Do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. Kind of sums up thinking, doesn't it? But the reality is, God never intended to make every Christian to look alike. Like cut out of paper dolls or cookie cutters. Think about the original 12. They were not alike. Peter and Andrew were so different and served the Lord within their talents. Matthew, nobody was like Matthew, a tax collector, a traitor to his own people. They didn't have his background, his situation to deal with. He was alone in that way. So even among the 12, add Paul to the mix. There was not another, the other 12, none of them were like Paul at all. Paul was so unique. At the same time, differences of, of opinion are no excuse for sloppy thinking or careless living. It's good to remember the words of the man who said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, remember, charity. You've heard that phrase before? I tried to look up and see who wrote that. It was kind of interesting because this whole concept about being together, we can't agree with who wrote it first. Some say it was Augustine, some say it wasn't, but it's worth repeating. In essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. Well, in Romans 14, Paul delivers a rather shocking guideline to these Christians to determine how do you do with these gray areas, these things that the Bible is either silent or inconclusive. Now, again, these are not matters of doctrine. These are how to behave. This is a matter of lifestyles, not beliefs. It's behaviors. Several commentaries that I read, they referenced D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon. There was one time D.L. Moody, a famous preacher in America in the 1800s, was in London visiting Charles uh, um, Spurgeon there. And while they were together, they got this small tiff that everybody heard about. When Moody asked Spurgeon, when are you going to give up smoking those cigars? He asked him that. Well, Spurgeon pointed his finger at Moody's considerable midsection and said, whenever you get rid of that. That kind of illustrates the point, doesn't it? Even great students of the Bible disagree, have different views. So how do we get along? What are we supposed to think? How do we keep it together? This may be the, the most beautiful way that we can be a witness to the world is that we can get along in spite of these differences. The power of Jesus Christ binds us 
even when we disagree about some of these gray areas. Remember Jesus' command in John 13, 35, a new command to give you love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my, you are my disciples. If you love one another. That's what we're talking about here. In Romans 14, he just fleshes that out. Maybe one of the greatest things Paul ever mentioned is in Ephesians 4, 3, when he talks about the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So we shouldn't be surprised then, as we're studying these key verses in, in Romans, that in chapter 14, he deals with this head on. He's concerned about the fellowship of those people who wear the name of Jesus, Jesus' church. He wants them to be unified. So he's going to tell them, for all of chapter 14 and on into chapter 15, how to get along in spite of your differences. So Paul is not pretending they don't exist. He's not sticking his head in the sand and saying, it's no big deal. He knows this is a big deal. In fact, I put a blank on your study guide for 36 verses. He deals with this because he wants to make sure they get the point. Now, Paul opens Romans 14 by bringing up one of the most difficult subjects for the church in that day to get along, food. Look on the screen. If you've got your Bible open, just read along with me. Romans 14, verses 1 through 3. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Now, if you've never studied this passage, or even if you've studied this passage at length, what comes to our mind in our day and time is, what's the big deal with this? Could this food issue really be that big of a problem for these early, these early church, these believers in Rome? Surely they could get past that. Surely this is not a big spiritual deal. But think for a moment what it meant for a Jew. Those dietary laws, that's all they've known. They're steeped in that culture, in that history. The ceremonial days and the, and the meals and the feasts and what they are to eat and what they're not to eat and how they go about it. And now they've entered into this new way, this new church of Jesus with grace and freedom. How do you just flip that switch? How do you just spiritually say, well, that doesn't matter anymore because now I've got this grace and freedom. Let me share what C.S. Keener said in his commentary about this background. He said, the precise time for festivals was such an important issue in Judaism that different Jewish groups broke fellowship with each other over the issue. So that's before the time of Christ. And then he comments, not much later in history, different Christian groups followed suit. Most distinct cultures, he says, in the ancient world had their own food customs. Some philosophical schools had their own food rules. But few, he admits, and draws to our attention, were as insistent as the Jewish people that their deity, their God, had made these food laws. In the two centuries before Paul, many Jews had died refusing to eat pork, a meat that the Greeks thought delicious. And we do too. Although we know that some Jews in Egypt took the food laws symbolically, most Jews continued to keep these laws even when they were in the Roman Empire. Now, Keener continues, not just food, it was also days. And Paul mentions this later in chapter 14. Pagans had their own festivals with different nations having their own ancestral customs and calendars. The Gentile writers 
especially thought so little of the Sabbath. The Romans reasoned that the Jews were lazy. They didn't want a day of rest. They wanted a day off. They didn't want to work. And it reminds us in this commentary that Pharaoh made the same claim about the Jews when they were in captive. That they didn't want to go worship God. They just didn't want to work. So there's different food, different days. They're important, different groups. And think about these Gentiles. They were being saved, becoming part of this new church, this new way of Jesus. They were coming out of pagan idolatry with all that was associated with that. They were weary of these empty lives. And they wanted to break all ties, customs, anything that had to do with these pagan idols. Totally. 180 degrees. In the early days of the church, these new Christians were more different than they were alike. They came from different backgrounds, different cultures, different habits, different dress, and different food, as he's talking about here in these opening verses. So how are they going to get along? How are they supposed to get along? When this one's eating, this one's not eating. And they're both looking down on each other because of that. Now, again, these matters of food might be silly to us, but to them... It was a big deal. And so you get the sense, like children wanting their parents to say, tell me I'm right. Tell me my brother is wrong, my sister is wrong. You've got Paul here on the hot seat. Paul, what's the answer? Tell us, can we eat meat or not? And look how he answers Romans 14 two. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, evidently, the Roman Jews had become vegetarians, at least some of them. And it wasn't that they thought killing animals was morally wrong. In fact, the Old Testament never commands us or commanded them to uh, abstain from meat. The problem was most likely their inability to trust that the meat was kosher, prepared in the proper way. And so they couldn't be sure of that, so they'd play it safe. You've heard that phrase? And refuse to eat meat altogether. If I can't be sure that it's right, then I'm going to eat only vegetables. And so there's this division in the church between meat eaters and vegetable-only eaters. But even with that, there's these subgroups. There are the meat eaters who do not care if it's kosher, and then the meat eaters who want it to be kosher, but they're not sure if it's been offered to idols, so they don't want to eat that. So you got the vegetarians, because there was this meat offered to idols, and then also the vegetable eaters who will not eat meat, not because it's been offered to idols, because they're not sure if the meat's kosher. And they're on the same church. So how do you have a potluck with that? I mean, you think about this going on. So Paul answers the question, can we eat meat or not eat meat? And his answer, I believe, is going to stun most of them and irritate all of them and challenge all of them. I want to let our lesson be this. I want to kind of summarize what Paul shares in these opening four verses. These are the points. Point number one, Paul says, start with acceptance. Start with acceptance. Look at verse one again. I put this on the screen. The NIV is at the top. It says, accept him there. The English Standard Version used the word welcome. That's what it is, welcome him. The New American Standard Bible says, accept the one whose faith is weak. And we know what that means. Accept, take oneself, receive into fellowship. And it's the middle voice, which means it's a warm reception. This is not tolerate. This is not we got to let them in. This is a warm embrace kind of welcome. It's the same word that Paul would use when he was writing to Philemon to say, you welcome Onesimus. Remember Onesimus was the runaway slave? 
He says, you welcome him. You accept him as if it was me. You treat him in that way. Same word used in Romans 15, 7, where it talks about Christ accepting believers to himself. This is the starting point for those of us who call ourselves Christians. You belong to one another. And note what it says here. Accept him whose faith is weak. Or some translations say weak in the faith. And the way that's written in the original text, this is not saying that they are weak in their trust of God. That's not what they're saying, that their, their belief is weak. That's, that's not the intent at all. What it's saying that they're weak and that they don't have a full understanding of the truth. That's where their weakness is. The fullness of the gospel message. Not that their belief in God was not strong. Oh, they believed. That's why their conviction about the food was so strong. But that their understanding was not deep. And by the way, what we need to look at this situation, because it helps us when we're looking at our situations, is don't think that these were insincere believers. They're not trying to be petty about these things. They were deeply conscientious about what they were believing they were so concerned with offending God, they had chosen to eat vegetables only. They wanted to make sure, and they stay away from meat altogether. They were young in their faith, but passionate in their lifestyle. What they didn't fully understand is that their acceptance by God and the family of God had nothing to do with what was on their plate. Let me say that again. What they didn't fully understand is their acceptance by God and the people of God had nothing to do with what was on their plate. And for the believers who got this, who understood, Paul is saying, be patient. They don't fully get it. So you be patient with that. Resist the temptation to withdraw the welcome mat. Don't close your door on them just yet. And I find it fascinating here what Paul does not say. He does not say what I just said. That your relationship with God and others has nothing to do with what you eat, what's on your plate. That would have been the easy answer. And we can look at this text and realize that would be the easy answer. Just tell me the rules. Tell me the rules and I'll follow the rules. I just need to know what the rules are. Maybe given the rule is easy. But it's not always best. Because the rule would have answered their immediate difference of opinion... What about their next difference of opinion? Now they're not arguing about meat. Now they're arguing about something else. And their next difference of an opinion. And your difference of an opinion. And my difference of an opinion. If we always have to have a rule by everything, then our Bibles will be so full of rules. Sometimes the best answer is not to give a rule. And God knows that. God knew, knows that always giving an answer never produces maturity growth and development in young believers or old. Giving them a rule to follow to God is not nearly as important as developing relationships with principled mind and unified hearts and gracious spirits who understand the big picture and can be able to apply that whatever comes up. So start by realizing everybody's got a place at the table. You start with acceptance, Paul says. Then Paul says, number two, refuse to argue. Refuse to argue. Maybe you've heard the phrase, do not major in the minors. 
We need to know the difference between orthodoxy and opinion. Several commentators mentioned Spurgeon, and here's another story I read. Back in the 1800s, he was traveling to meetings by train, and he would choose to ride in first class. It was a big deal. It's been that much money to ride in first class. You ever flown in first class? You know, it's a lot of money, and it's a big deal. Most of us don't ride in first class. Well, there was a preacher on the same train, and he was riding in third class. And it irked him that here he is riding in third class, watching this preacher riding in first class. So he's made his way up to Spurgeon. He demanded, Mr. Spurgeon, what are you doing up here in first class? I'm riding back there in third class, taking care of the Lord's money. And Spurgeon says, well, I'm riding up here in first class, taking care of the Lord's servant. And I thought, I need to remember that. <laughs> maybe next time I'm buying a car, maybe I can use that in some way. Paul's saying, accept do not argue. The English Standard Version says, do not quarrel. Why do we quarrel? Why do we quarrel? Because we like it, don't we? And we don't admit that, but we do. Again, it would be so easy for Paul, the church at Rome, to say, well, you veggie Christians, you all just need to go to another church. Or you meat-loving Christians, you need to start your own meat-loving church. That way you'd all be happy. Because you'd all think similarly. He doesn't even hint at that as being a solution with having to deal with this. And neither should we. We shouldn't think that way. He simply says, look in Romans 14 too, One person believes he may eat anything, while a weak person eats only vegetables. And just before that in verse 1, As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. However, it's not enough just to not quarrel, just to hold your tongue, because what's in the heart is much more important than what's on the plate. And that's the next point. Number three, check your attitude. Look what he says in verse three. The NIV says, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. The English Standard Version says, despise. The New American Standard says, regard with contempt. We know what all those mean. You view them as worthless, disrespect somebody because their viewpoint is different than yours and you're better than them. It's a thinking. Now, you may not actually be arguing with them and you may not say it, but you're thinking it. Paul's saying, don't go there. You don't look down on somebody for their opinion. And then he addresses the other side of the argument in the last part of verse 3. He starts verse 3, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not and... The man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Get this. It works both ways. And we need to understand that. Both sides need to check their attitude. Both sides can be judgmental and critical and downright hateful in the way we think about those who disagree with us on any issue and at any time. And Paul is saying, adjust your attitude. Don't go there. Those who do not eat, those who do eat, look down their nose at those who don't. Those who don't eat, separate from those who do. That's what that word condemn means. It's the idea that I'm judging you by separating myself from you. I don't want to be in your company. I don't want to be with you. That's the judgment that he's talking about here. Both sides need an adjustment to their attitude. And by the way, both sides have valid points. And that's something that we miss sometimes 
when we're looking at an issue or situation. What's lost in the heat of the argument is balance and truly listening to one another. Let me give you an example of that. Someone would say, even today, Christianity has nothing to do with what you wear. So you can wear anything you like. Christianity has nothing to do with what you wear, so wear anything you like. Someone else might say, but wait, doesn't what you wear communicate a message? Can't what you wear and how you wear it cause someone else to think something regarding you that they shouldn't be thinking? Both sides are right. Both sides are right. And get this, Paul is teaching us that both sides might be necessary for us to reach the best conclusion. Don't just write somebody off, judge them, separate yourself, or they're wrong, I'm right. Listen to them. Don't allow your, your freedom to cause you to jump to conclusions, well, they just don't get it. Or your restrictive view to make you condemn the other view. I heard this illustration. I think I heard this from Jeremy Butt. He may have used it in a sermon. You probably heard it before, too. A minister found out how people can interpret things so many different ways. He was using a, a visual aid in a sermon. And what he did is he had four jars. And in the jars, the first jar, he had a, a jar of alcohol. And he put a worm in the alcohol. In the second jar, it was a jar of cigarette smoke. And he put a worm in that jar of cigarette smoke. And the third jar was a jar of chocolate syrup. And he put a worm in the chocolate syrup. And then the, the fourth jar was good, uh, nutrient-rich soil. And he put a worm in that one as well. And so then the sermon, as he went on, the jars are up there, everybody's looking at them, was about smoking and alcohol and even about gluttony and, and just how, you know, taking care of your body. And that was the way the sermon went. And so toward the end, then, he opened the jars to see what happened. He opened the jar of alcohol, the worm was dead. Opened the jar of smoke, and the worm was dead. He opened the jar of chocolate syrup, and the worm was dead. Although I would say he had a smile on his face. <laughs> Another story. And he opened the jar of the soil, the good soil, and the worm was alive. And so he opened the floor and he said, what do you learn from this? And Maxine, toward the back, was quick to throw her hand up and just say very quickly, as long as you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you'll never get worms. <laughs> Not the message he was trying to get across. Paul is challenging us, folks. In Romans 14, think, think about what you believe. What does the Bible say, especially in these gray areas? What happens when there is no, thus says the Lord? And there are going to be others who think differently than you. I think without a doubt, this Romans chapter 14, it rattled their cage. They weren't expecting this kind of answer. But here's what happened. By giving this answer, you got the Jews and the Gentiles who are from such different backgrounds going at war with each other. He takes their ammunition away. They can't argue anymore. Neither side can demand that the other side acknowledge that they are superior. In fact, I believe Paul is suggesting that if either side wins the argument, both sides lose. So start with acceptance, refuse to argue. Check your attitude. And then number four, remember your authority. 
Remember your authority. This is key. Look in verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Again, Paul is saying, stop and think. What right do any of us have to judge the opinions of another believer? Now, again, Paul's not talking about doctrine here. He's not talking about explicit sinful behavior that we know is condemned in Scripture. That's not on the table. Paul is talking about opinions, disputable matters, gray areas. That's what he's talking about here. Who are we to judge one another when it's a matter of opinion? Fortunately, we don't answer to each other. We answer to God. In fact, look at the screen. Let me look at these next couple of verses in Romans chapter 14. I know we're getting beyond the, the text, but what I want you to see here, and I put it on the screen. If you've got your Bible, you might even want to circle or underline these because in the, these four verses, Romans 14, 6 through 9, he's going to reference God 10 times. And to me, the overwhelming message is, who's authority? You check your authority. Remember your authority. Verse 6, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Observing days, eating food, not eating food, whatever you're doing, whatever you're not doing, he says, it's for the Lord. It's not, I've always done it this way, or my mom said this, or I've always believed. Whatever you're doing, you're doing it for the Lord. Remember that your reason, that's your motive. God's your ultimate audience. And don't forget that. So don't haphazardly swing the pendulum because you finally understand your freedom in Christ. And it doesn't matter what you wear. Maybe it does. On the other hand, don't do it out of some spirit of misery equals spirituality. And if others don't have the same restrictive views as you, then they must not be as devoted to God. Do what you do, or don't do, unto the Lord. And you give thanks to God. Let me close with this real quickly. Key word, Romans 14. Not just 1 through 4. Really, Romans 14, 36 verses on into Romans chapter 15, I think verse 13. Acceptance. That's the word. I want to encourage you, if you've got your Bible open there, you just circle these in your Bible. I did mine. You could draw a line. Verse 1, the word acceptance. And then draw a line down to verse 3, where it's mentioned there again. And then in verse 18 of chapter 14, if you read from the NIV, it says pleasing. But it's the same word, acceptance. Pleasing to God, acceptable to God. And then skip to chapter 15, verse 7, where it appears twice. The key word is Acceptance. But to fully appreciate this statement in Romans 15, 7, we've got to read it in context. I want to end with this. An incredible challenge for those of us who want to be completely committed followers of Jesus. Look at Romans 15. And I want to start in verse 5 and lead up to verse 7. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. 
so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Accepting others in the Lord, as he says here, will go a long way for you to be a graceful person. A person full of grace. Our invitation is for anyone who's not yet named the name of Jesus. If you're ready to confess your belief that he is the son of God. If you're ready to have your sins washed away in baptism. We want to help you with that. Or maybe you are a Christian. And this topic that we're talking about is a challenge for you. And we can pray for you about this. About extending grace. About not being argumentative or not judging other people. Or if we can pray for you for anything. Would you come as we stand and sing to encourage?